The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I know that eliminating r- Russian gas will have costs for Europe. This war will be a strategic failure for Putin. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. If Putin feels like he's losing his grip politically in Russia, that's more important to him than the battlefield in the Ukraine. Unfortunately, what you're doing with sanctions is you are pressuring the middle class. You are pressuring the people. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden makes a run for the border of Poland as the U.S. and E.U. gang up to replace Russian natural gas. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for making us part of your Friday. We've got a lot to cover. As President Biden visits U.S. troops and gets a briefing on the refugee crisis, we'll bring you there with a firsthand account from Bloomberg's Aggie Canfrill, who's been in Poland since the war began. Later, Donald Trump puts his kingmaker status on the line in Georgia. With several endorsements in the state that are not looking good at the moment, we'll talk about it with Bloomberg national political reporter Mark Niquette. Our panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano, along with John Sidalides, State Department advisor and partner with Trilogy Advisors. President Biden and the European Union announcing an agreement today that could hit Russia even harder than the sanctions, paving the way to sharply increase shipments of U.S. natural gas to Europe, and by that we mean replace imports of Russian natural gas. Here's the president today in Brussels. The United States, together with our international partners, we're going to work to ensure an additional 15, 15, 15 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas, LNG, for Europe this year. The president says the move is about more, however, than principle. I know that eliminating Russian gas will have costs for Europe. But it's not only the right thing to do from a moral standpoint, it's going to put us on a much stronger strategic footing. So it's going to take time, though. Uh, European imports of liquid natural gas, LNG, from Russia, as I'm reading on the terminal here, I learned a lot about this over the last couple of weeks, stood at about 14 to 18 billion cubic meters annually over the past couple of years. The president just pledged 15, right? It'll require new infrastructure, terminals, probably pipelines, and, of course, additional sources to make up for the rest of it. It's going to take a lot of work. The president made his way toward Poland's border with Ukraine today, about 60 miles away from the border, where he was briefed on the massive refugee crisis there after meeting with members of the 82nd Airborne. Listen to when he walked into the mess hall. He dropped everything while they were eating and stood for the commander-in-chief, and the president was just in time for lunch, apparently. Listen, this is... Well, if you're starting to eat, I'm going to sit down and have some meat. Is that all right? Yeah. We got the pizza. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sat down for some pizza. We had pepperoni with peppers on that one. Told some jokes. 
troops sitting at long tables. Watch the whole thing on the terminal, by the way. I love these raw feeds on live go. As we've told you, more than 2 million people have crossed into Poland since this all started a month ago. Bloomberg's Aggie Cantrell has been covering it for us with incredible grace. She joins us now. Aggie, thank you for being here. How important was this visit for people who fled their country? Were they even aware that he was there? I think um, especially tomorrow people will be aware because Biden is going to have a very big presence in Warsaw tomorrow. Um, uh, and a lot of the refugees that flee go to Warsaw from the border. But what was really significant about this visit, um, especially from the humanitarian focus, is um, for Poland more broadly um, to have this sort of international recognition. Poland um, has actually been a little bit on the outs with the EU on quite a few issues um, in the last couple of years. And so this visit from Biden, as well as obviously having significant security dynamics to it about um, bolstering the eastern flank of NATO, there is this side of it as well that this is also showing um, Poland in quite a good light in a way that it hasn't really been uh, been seen in international media for the last couple of years. Can you describe uh, where these refugees are staying, at least when they arrive? I realize to your point that, that they fan out in many cases around the country, but how do you house and feed, what, two million people as they come across the border? Well, that's that's really the, the big question. And when I first arrived here, that was um, something that you really saw firsthand, that there were so many people coming over the border in that first week or so that I was here. Mm-hmm. There were 60 hour waiting times for people to make that border crossing. And then there weren't really options of where they go. And a huge amount of people in Poland have opened up their homes to refugees. So it's actually been a case where a lot of pe- a lot of refugees coming over the border have been able to find options of where to stay. There have also been companies like Airbnb that have been offering free accommodation for refugees. And then on top of that, there have been a lot of cases of um, temporary accommodation, like for instance, in the town of Przemysl, which is a border town, which I've spent a lot of time at, there's a old shopping mall that has been converted into essentially temporary accommodation, which is organized into the cities or the countries that refugees are looking to travel to. So you walk huh. into this old shopping mall and you see rooms of people sleeping in rooms that have signs on the door for Gdansk or Warsaw or even to Berlin. A lot of people don't know about this, Aggie. This isn't getting into all the reporting. How are those facilities? Are they clean? Is, is it somewhere where you'd spend the night? Um, I think, I mean... It- Nowhere can really be that clean when there are that many people there. But I do think that there has definitely been a effort in the last couple of weeks um, to streamline the process of people arriving and also coordinate and manage the accommodation of the where people are staying. Mm-hmm. Something that I also noticed as well is that there has been obviously a lot of journalists on the ground and a lot of people are paying attention to this story and from the first week I got here when you could go in anywhere and talk to anyone now. And I think that this is really a very good thing is that um, the authorities have been more conscious of uh, and not allowing people so much to film or photograph inside the areas where people are staying. Um, they're very much more conscious of the fact that there has been not just a media free for all here, but also um, a huge amount of people who are volunteers, but also some volunteers who may not be 
with organizations yeah. who need to um, have their their uh, documents checked. And so in the last week or so, I've seen that become a lot more structured in these um, places where the refugees are being accommodated. Have you seen evidence? I don't know if it's possible from your perspective, but evidence of aid from countries like the U.S. actually arriving to border towns and improving conditions? Oh, ab- absolutely. There's there's a huge amount of aid arriving here um, every day. Um, I can't say I've seen any directly from the U.S. Um, however, something that is very apparent um, is the amount of uh, foreign number plates that are in this area. The amount of cars that I see that have Spanish number plates or German number plates. And quite often it is really just people saying, hey, I pulled all this stuff together. I wanted to ship it down here. And seeing as I've been here for several weeks now, I've also been contacted by friends of friends and other people who have seen that I've been working here and just come and asking me personally how they managed to uh, how they would manage to just deliver the stuff. And that's actually how a huge amount of the donations have come. And it's really then a massive task for the organizers and the uh, volunteers on the ground here to then sort of piece out what is still needed, what they need yeah. more of, and try yeah. and make those lists clear to the people who very uh, generous, but often there needs to be a bit more direction sometimes in what is being donated and how it's being donated. We heard from the Pentagon that Ukrainians were driving uh, themselves into Poland to also to pick up military equipment that the U.S. and and NATO countries were providing to the Ukrainians. Do you have any sense of whether they're steering those people away from refugee camps, away from civilian areas, or would you not know since they're they're taking civilian unmarked cars to begin with? Um, I honestly wouldn't um, know. However, I have spoken to people who are doing deliveries across the border who, while a lot of their deliveries may be humanitarian in nature, they yeah. will be providing other things as well. Um, <laughs> for obvious reasons, a lot of the people I've spoken to don't want to talk about uh, what routes they're taking or how they're taking them over the border. Um, And when it comes to um, those sort of deliveries, um, that's also a big factor of where I was today, um, where Biden was today as well. Um, I was at in Jeshov, which is essentially um, the largest local airport. um, And uh, Biden arrived there today to speak to the 82nd Airborne. And this small town of only about 200,000 people has essentially been a key artery in providing humanitarian and military supplies to Ukraine because it's sort of the last stop uh, from air travel before those uh, those uh, supplies are then shipped across the border in trucks. Mm -hmm. You've been there for weeks, Aggie. What is the image you will not be able to forget, the one that you'll think back on to represent this this period of time after you leave? The thing that um, sticks out to me, I spoke recently to a a woman who couldn't have been older than 20, um, and she has been... She has lost contact with her brother for a very long time who was stuck in the city of Mariupol. And now she's um, heard from him again, but she feels like she doesn't know for how long she's able to hear from him. And she has left with her mother and she has left her 
brother and her father in Ukraine and they were sitting in the station with a very large dog um, that was their pet that they brought over and um, she was just looking at her phone um, both before and after the short interview I had with her and she was saying she was just waiting that she could speak to her brother. This is the kind of reporting you can only do by being there. And I don't know how long you're going to be on assignment, Aggie, but uh, we're all fortunate to have you there and we're all benefits of your reporting. I appreciate your time coming on with us today. Thank you. Coming up, we assemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and John Sidlides back with us today, State Department advisor with Trilogy Advisors. We'll check traffic and check the markets for you along the way as well. An update from Charlie Pellet is forthcoming. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. A chilling story from Bloomberg's Peter Martin here in the D.C. Bureau that the Biden administration worried Vladimir Putin may lash out dangerously, he writes, as Russian troops find themselves bogged down in Ukraine. As Peter says, Putin tends to act out, not back down. That's where we start with the panel today. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano is with us, along with John Sidalides, State Department advisor and partner with Trilogy Advisors. Welcome to both of you. Jeannie, you, you, you read further into this. You follow the ball down here. And this is why the administration is continuing to worry about the possibility of a chemical attack or even, as I read here, a tactical nuclear weapon attack. Following several days of conversations, or at least two days in Europe with the president, our NATO allies, do we know what that response would be if that happened? That's a game changer, right? It is a game changer, and I think it's a very real concern and real possibility. I mean, I, I woke up this morning reading on the terminal, and, and the numbers are just, you know, enormous. Seven NATO, uh, talking about seven to 15,000 Russians dead in one month, potentially. You know, obviously, Russia isn't, isn't agreeing with that. Wounded 30,000 to 40,000. Wow. You compare that to what we've experienced in terms of deaths in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, doesn't even approach anywhere That's near right. that, and that changed our... The the way we think about war in the world. So you can imagine. And that's why I think you hear the administration rightly trying to prepare and being concerned that these are very real possibilities, biological, nuclear attacks, you know, some kind of, you know, chemical weapon. And Russia has done this before. So it is not out of the realm of possibility. But that's not sanctions, right, John? When we think about whatever severe consequences or however the administration likes to term it, this is, that would have to be something that we... We haven't seen yet. The president indicated today it would be proportional. Uh, but where do you begin if you're trying to avoid a military conflict? A great question. And one of the things that President Biden and his team are going to have to be practicing in the days and weeks and potentially in the months ahead is strategic ambiguity. You've got to keep Putin off of his feet, off balance and not know what's coming. And 
One of the other concerns that we have, in addition to what Jeannie is talking about here with biological or chemical weapons, and of course, Joe, to your point about a tactical nuclear weapon, which Putin's doctrine does allow for, these have been published in Russian military journals, is also the very real possibility of a cyber attack. And President mm -hmm. Biden has already been warning the U.S. economy about a possible cyber attack. So there's a, a number of options available to Putin. And I think it all depends on the extent to which the U.S. is potentially uh, further arming the Ukrainian military with MiGs, uh, with anti-aircraft missile systems and the like. And uh, he's doing this to terrorize and to put fear into the hearts of the U.S. and the West. And it's going to be a very challenging period ahead. Well, when we think about proportional response, Jeannie, a chemical attack, I suppose, you know, that 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 in itself is a game changer beyond a, a cyber attack. That seems like a different class to me. Does a chemical or even if it were, say, a nuclear attack, which some people don't think possible, but some do speak about openly here. Uh, if you question the mental uh, state of Vladimir Putin right now, uh, those responses need to look different, right? Is there a military response or is that just not going to happen with this White House? You know, I, I think there has to be some kind of, you know, allied military response. What that's going to be, I think, is still, you know, not being discussed or addressed publicly. But, you know, the idea that we are talking in 2022 about a potential biological or strategic nuclear or chemical attack yeah. in, in Europe. of it happening. In yeah, it, it, it's, it's absolutely stunning for anybody who thinks that this hasn't been a game changer in terms of the world order. That is a sure indication, as is the fact that, again, today, President Biden was very clear that they are designating or at least defining Vladimir Putin as a war criminal. You can't walk back from these kinds of discussions and these kinds of statements. You can't just go and negotiate with Russia in the future if Putin is still there. So this is a game changer. John, has the visit to Poland been a success for the, the, the commander in chief so far? He met with troops today, briefed on the refugee crisis. He's got a big speech ahead of him tomorrow in Warsaw. I think it has been a success, Joe, in the context of Western unity, of transatlantic unity, uh, for the most part. But again, we're in the middle of an armor assault on a sovereign country, the likes of which we haven't seen in seven decades. Yeah. And this war, unfortunately, may only be in the opening stages. So it could be a tactical success, but we don't know if it'll have any bearing long term. And, and to the concerns that are being raised here about the possibility of a nuclear attack, again, this has all been part of the Russian military doctrinaire thinking in open journals. Our military has been preparing for this for years. It just hasn't been part of the public discourse. And Vladimir Putin is forcing the world to yeah. talk about things that we once thought inconceivable in this modern era. Certainly. This, that's the thing, this modern era. You know, some of us grew up when, when we were still concerned about, a, you know, a potential uh, mm -hmm. nuclear conflict with the USSR. But it's, you know, you have to be above a certain age. Uh, to be there, certainly. Uh, how did the, the trip go today, Jeannie, for, for President Biden? Did he get the, the sort of photo op that he needed? And what does he say in the speech tomorrow? You know, I think the trip has gone as well as can be expected and as well as they could have hoped. I, I think, you know, 
it's very important to underscore what the German vice chancellor said today. He said about the extraordinary measures his country is taking by midsummer, they cut dependency on Russian oil by a half and maybe eliminated and by almost the end of the year. Mm-hmm. That is, in his words, extraordinary. So if Joe Biden went over there to rally support, keep the allies together yeah. and diminish their dependence on Russian oil. Is this he, a tear down this wall speech tomorrow? I think they want it to be. I think it's a question of if Joe Biden can deliver that. And I think, you know, that is something we have to wait and see. But it really is a moment on which he is well positioned to make that kind of historic statement. Jeannie and John with us for the hour and our sound on panel coming up. We turn to the stump as Donald Trump heads for Georgia with hopes of replacing several Republicans, including the governor. We'll talk to Bloomberg's Mark McKett. Here on Sound On, I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Headline on the terminal, Trump puts kingmaker status on the line as a Georgia recruit falters. That recruit is the former senator, David Perdue. Donald Trump wants him to replace the sitting Republican governor because of what happened in 2020. We'll talk ahead with Bloomberg's Mark Niquette. It's going to be quite a day in Commerce, Georgia tomorrow. At least Donald Trump is hoping so. With a big rally planned for the Republican candidates he is supporting to replace a couple of sitting Republicans. Now we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to support a great gentleman, a great candidate. He's running for governor, David Perdue. There's one. He's going to clean things up. He's going to do a great job. Bloomberg's Mark Niquette writing about it, and he's with us now. Mark, welcome back. It's great to have you. You say the former president is putting his kingmaker status on the line this weekend. Is this all about settling scores from the last election? It's a lot about that, uh, Joe. He's, he's essentially uh, targeted the, the top uh, elected Republicans in Georgia who uh, wouldn't go along with his efforts to overturn uh, the results of the 2020 election mm-hmm. uh, that he lost in Georgia. That starts with Biden. the governor. Correct. The governor, the secretary of state, and the attorney general. He's all uh, endorsed <laughs> challengers to, and trying to defeat them in uh, Georgia's May 23rd, 24th primary. Boy, so we've got three primaries here. Uh, the governor... Brian Kemp, who a lot of people learned about during the uh, 2020 election aftermath. Donald Trump has chosen the former senator, David Perdue, to try to unseat Brian Kemp. David Perdue's not doing so well, Mark. No, and this is why it's going to be so interesting uh, to see whether Trump has an effect on this race and is able to deliver a victory for Kemp. Uh, excuse me for for Purdue, mm-hmm. because uh, as you say, Brian Kemp is leading in the polls. He has 15 times as much cash on hand and fundraising uh, over Purdue, um, and it, it looks like if if you know Kemp uh, goes ahead and wins this primary, uh, it'll be a particularly uh, embarrassing defeat for for Trump, who yeah. you know likes to brag that his endorsement is the most valuable and right. sought after in Republican politics. Now, what have the issues been in this race, or is it simply? follow Donald Trump, make up for 2020? A lot of it has been that. You had um, uh, Purdue, you know, arguing uh, along with Trump that 
um, uh, Kemp is a rhino, you know, Republican in name only, mm-hmm. um, and you know, focusing a lot on the, the president's grievances that um, the 2020 election was stolen and that uh, Kemp didn't do enough to uh, catch to the fraud or rebut the fraud uh, that you know Trump falsely claims you know cost him the victory in Georgia. You mentioned the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is another name that kind of became a household name uh, during the 2020 aftermath. Donald Trump has chosen Representative Jody Heiss to run against Raffensperger. Is he in trouble? Um, we'll see how that race turns out. It, it was looking like um, Raffensperger was going to have trouble hanging on in that race. Uh, it seems like it, it might be tightening up as we get closer to the primary. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's been a good polling lately that would show us exactly where that stands, but uh, that's another one we'll be watching very closely. Uh, because, as you say, um, after the election, Trump had a phone call with, with Raffensperger and infamously told him, he wanted uh, uh, the Secretary of State to find, find 11,780 votes, votes you know, which would have been enough to overturn the, the result in Georgia. Yeah, he's been on this program, as a matter of fact. And there's another big one that we're watching with Herschel Walker, the, the former football star. Trump endorsed him. He's running to challenge uh, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Yeah, and that race looks like it's not even a race. Uh, the polling has uh, Herschel Walker way out in front. Um, and it's one of the rare cases where Trump's endorsement also matches Senate Majority Leader McConnell. Um, McConnell has been on the other side of of Trump's endorsements in some cases, worried that, you know, the the Republicans could nominate a weaker general election candidate and lose a seat. But in this case, you know, looks like Walker has got smooth sailing into the general election against Warnock. Well, so how important is this rally going to be, or is it only important in Donald Trump's mind in terms of actually changing minds? No, it'll be very important because the, the, the question is, Will Donald Trump physically coming to a state to stump for his candidates, in particular uh, David Perdue, you know, have an influence and, and help those candidates win? Um, because this is this will be sort of a, a, a barometer for whether Donald Trump has the sort of ability to be a kingmaker. And, and if he loses these high-profile races, as candidates lose, it will sort of embolden the uh, folks in the party who don't want to see Trump as a leader you know, want to see yeah. the party move on from his 2020 election claims. And it could also embolden uh, candidates who are thinking about running for president in 2024, but, you know, are kind of wary about taking on Trump. Absolutely. So this is a pretty big deal, this primary here. We're not even talking about general election results, Mark. You just framed the outcome. If Donald Trump doesn't get what he wants here, how about if he does? How about if there's an upset for David Perdue? How about if Raffensperger's packing his bags? Does that make it more likely Donald Trump runs for president, make it more likely that the Republican Party stays at attention? I think so. Clearly, you know, Donald Trump will say that these candidates only won because of him, particularly um, uh, Purdue, given that he's, you know, behind in the polls and fundraising right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it will just be another sort of example that uh, Donald Trump points to and says, yes, I am the king. And, you know, (laughs) you should think twice about uh, challenging me. You're going to the rally, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'll be there, along with uh, Margaret Newkirk, who uh, um, is our reporter in Atlanta. And, shares the byline uh, with you here. Correct. Is the Trump road show what it used to be? It sure, certainly is. Uh, it'll be interesting if the rally this time changes at all from, from what he's been doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, a typical Trump rally is sort of 99% of Donald Trump talking about himself, uh, the rigged election in 2020, yeah. how great things were when he was president, and how terrible Joe Biden is. 
Uh, and he sort of also mentions that, hey, there's these other local candidates here who are uh, supporting right. me or, or that I've endorsed. He's got Putin uh, to talk about this time, though. Exactly. He's talked about Putin at, at previous rallies, too, but only kind of in passing. It's It's been mostly talking about him and his record and, um, you know, looking ahead, really, to the, the midterm elections in, in 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this race, this rally in Georgia, is, um, it seems like it's more keenly focused on really trying to give a boost to David Perdue and his other endorsed candidates, because Georgia is a state where he's, he's really focused his, his attention after the election and in particular, you know, trying to get revenge for uh, what he feels were Republicans who did not do enough to help him uh, overturn the results in 2020. Well, I hope you enjoy the show in commerce, Mark. Mark Niquette, who shares the byline, as mentioned, with Margaret Newkirk, our team, the headline, Trump puts kingmaker status on the line as a Georgia recruit falters. This ought to be really something. Thanks for the insights, Mark. We'll talk to you again soon on Bloomberg. Thank you. Coming up, we reassemble the panel for their take on Georgia and the influence of Donald Trump on these races as we also wrap a wild week in Washington. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano will be here along with John Sidalides with us on the fastest hour in politics. It's Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So the Trump Road Show is back, heading for Georgia this weekend, as we were discussing with Mark Niquette. He was just in South Carolina a couple weeks ago. And I'm sure while this rally will be wild and likely overflowing, it may not have an impact on the primary with a couple of high-profile Trump endorsements on the line. Let's reassemble the panel with Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, easy for me to say, and John Sidalides is with us as well on the fastest hour in politics. Thanks to both of you for being here, Jeannie. These these rallies, kind of a, a, a carnival type of atmosphere, are fun to cover, sometimes dangerous to cover, depending on who you work for. But can they actually have an impact on this race? Because it looks like the candidates that Donald Trump has endorsed could be in some trouble. Joe Matthew, I don't know what it says about us that we think they're fun to watch and to cover. <laughs> it's a, this is going to be a revenge rally. Um, this is what it has been for Donald Trump. There's no race he has been more invested in than uh, the Wyoming race with, with Liz Cheney and this race with Brian Kemp in Georgia. Of course, he's got six candidates, and you talked about several of them with Mark. Um, and, you know, this is a race that he really can't afford to lose. But if you look at what is happening on the other side meeting the more moderate Republicans it's a race they really hope he will lose and we know that because the RGA just put up another commercial they seldom get involved in primaries but this is their second commercial in support of Brian Kemp which speaks in a primary speaks volumes they want Trump to lose they want Kemp to win and they want candidates to be free of the shackles of Donald Trump so they can pick up more seats in Congress and across the country which they feel he's going to cost them again as he did last time in Georgia. 
John, as Mark is reporting for Bloomberg and told us, polls show Purdue uh, faltering and Kemp holding as much as a double-digit lead for the contest, which is May 24th, by the way. It's coming up pretty soon. Nearly 15 times as much cash on hand. What will this say about the Trump brand if it keeps going in this direction? It'll say some things, but I wouldn't read into this far beyond the dynamics of the actual Georgia race, Joe. And by that, I mean that Donald Trump remains absolutely the single most powerful and popular figure in the Republican Party in the United States. But he may have simply picked a lackluster candidate in David Perdue. Yeah. Uh, governor Kemp is the incumbent governor, which is why the Republican, Republican Governors Association is putting in so much money. They want to protect their incumbents. Mm-hmm. But he's run a pretty disciplined campaign. He's uh, governed as a conservative. He lifted COVID, COVID restrictions early. He enacted voting reforms, and he just uh, repealed uh, temporarily a 24-cent gas tax on, a, on every gallon of gas. So he's running a smart campaign. It's a sure. disciplined campaign, and Trump may have just made a mistake here, but I don't think this blemishes Trump's ability to influence elections in other parts of the country. And depending on how the rally goes and how much Trump can talk up Purdue, he may be able to shave a couple of points off of Kemp's lead, mm-hmm. but it looks like Kemp is going to win this one. As I read in uh, Mark's reporting, uh, Jeannie, he reminds us President Trump became the first Republican presidential candidate to lose the state in 28 years. So is this more about Donald Trump, more about the state of Georgia? He did. And this is what is frustrating to many Republicans and what Democrats have to hope happens again. He is not backing candidates because they are going to they are the best candidates or they are best positioned to win. As if he was choosing in this race, he would have chosen Kemp, you know, to 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 John's point. But he is picking them because he doesn't like them because they didn't support him in 2020. And that is a recipe for disaster. And we've seen this over and over again. His choices in Alabama, his choice in Pennsylvania, you know, his Nancy Mace, South Carolina, Rodney Davis in Illinois, you can go on and on. Those people are doing okay, despite the fact that he is he's not supportive of them. So, yes, he does remain, obviously, as as the former president, the most important voice in the Republican Party to date. But it's not going to help Republicans do as well as they should, quite frankly, in this midterm if he keeps this up. This is an incredibly busy week in politics, a noisy week from the campaign trail to a war in Europe. Of course, the president traveling. There's been a heck of a lot going on that has distracted uh, the country, in in my humble opinion, from the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And I, I, I probably am more disposed to say that because I spent the week listening to them and watching them. I know you did too, Jeannie. Uh, historic in, in their own right, just this process is something that's fascinating. And of course, having the historic uh, nominee as the first black woman uh, is, is an extra layer. Uh, but we learned today that Senator Joe Manchin is going to support the president's nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson after everything you saw this week, Jeannie. Is it now said and done? I think it is. I think she will, you know, very narrowly win. But, you know, there are still some potential wrinkles ahead. You know, what would happen if the committee deadlocked? Um, You know, there is a way out of that. But we haven't seen that in, you know, something like over 100 years, probably more. Um, You know, this is what we're facing. So I do think in the end she moves out of committee. She gets to the floor. I I am not thinking she gets many Republican votes, if, if even one. But, you know, it is stunning because she is a very strong nominee. She is also this historic pick. So it is stunning that she is going to go probably at 51, you know, 50. Right. Is it a problem, uh, 
John, that we're talking about such a potentially close outcome here for an historic nomination, or is that just politics now? Unfortunately, I think it's Supreme Court politics and the Senate of recent years. Almost every candidate now goes through this kind of very, very difficult, challenging grilling. Um, and we don't know yet how Senator Kirsten Sinema will vote, although mm. I don't see much leverage uh, available to her because it, it looks like there may be one or two Republicans that decide to vote for her. And so those negotiations will likely be quick. I think there are about seven Republicans, one or two of whom might vote for um, for Judge Jackson. And so this likely will pass, but it would be a rather odd situation if, as you see yeah. in this, this historic nomination, we have a 50-50 vote in the Senate and the vice president has to be the tiebreaker. And it's entirely possible. Uh, are you mm -hmm. thinking of the same names that we all are based on Judge Jackson's uh, prior vetting and confirmation votes, John? It would be Collins, Murkowski, or Graham, who's clearly not going to vote yes. Yeah, I don't think Graham is going to be voting yes anytime soon, not after uh, his remarks the other day. It looks like it could be either Senator Murkowski, uh, who did vote for Judge Jackson uh, last year when she yeah. was nominated to the D.C. Court of Appeal. So unless there's something specific or telling from, from the, um, the nomination process this week, the hearing, that would make her reverse her judgment on the judge last year, um, but we don't know. We'll see what happens there. And Susan Collins, she could be mercurial on so many issues from a Republican standpoint. Yes. I know that uh, I believe President Biden has called on her three times to discuss this nomination. So there could be a lot of pressure on her as well. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, it'll play out over the next several days. What's your take on that, Jeannie? Are those names in play or are we talking about likely no Republicans voting in favor? You know, at this point, I, I'm going to be surprised if she gets more than one Republican. And if there is one Republican, I agree with John. I, my bet is probably it's Murkowski if there yeah. is one Republican. So they've already been named, though. Yeah, I, I don't see anybody new. and I certainly don't see Lindsey Graham after that performance this week going over and supporting her. So I, I do think we're looking probably at So I'll at ask Murkowski. you the same question, Jeannie. Is that a problem based on the historic nature of this nomination? Or is this what we should accept now? Uh, this is this is the rule, right? Simple majority. This is the way it goes politically in Washington. This is the way it goes now. You know, hopefully we see it change in the future, but it's been going this way since the Bork nomination many, many yeah. years ago. It's heading in this direction never for a long this time. Close, it's never been this close. And again, Sandra Day O'Connor, 99 to nothing. Katanji Brown Jackson, she'll narrowly get through if she does. Boy, isn't that something else? It uh, looks like April 4th, we get the, the committee vote, uh, are you concerned, John, about this getting out of committee? Um, I, I really don't have an answer for you on that. Uh, we'll see how this all plays out. I think the larger issue will be, as Jeannie said, this will get out of committee at one point or another. And then the question will be, can they get this to the floor by uh, April 9th before the Easter mm -hmm. recess? I mean, that's the larger goal here. Well, I'll tell you, we'll, of course, cover it all together here, and that's in the very near future here. You'll be talking about it and hearing about it on Bloomberg Sound On, and I want to thank Jeannie and John, Jeannie, she and Zeno, who you know, Bloomberg Politics contributor who is with us uh, almost every night here on Sound On. Have a great weekend, Jeannie and John Sidalides, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and a consultant to the State Department whose view we're always lucky to have here on Sound On. March is Women's History Month, kind of parlays into that whole story. And every day this month, we're celebrating significant moments in women's history. And with your installment for this Friday, March 25th, can you believe that? Here's Bloomberg's Renita Young.
On this day in women's history in 1967, record-breaking figure skater Debbie Thomas is born in Poughkeepsie, New York. She grew up in San Jose, California, where she started her ice skating career at five years old. While she was young, her mom drove her over 100 miles a day between home, school, and the ice rink. In 1983, Thomas joined the Los Angeles Figure Skating Club. And three years later, she won both the U.S. national title and world championships, becoming the first female African-American figure skater to do so. During many of her career wins, Thomas was a full-time college student at Stanford University on a pre-med track. And in 1988, Thomas made Olympic history, becoming the first black athlete to ever win a medal at the Winter Games, earning a bronze medal in figure skating. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Big thanks to Renita. We'll have more, a couple more at least from Renita next week here on Sound On. It's always been a pleasure to look forward to these reports. Thanks for a great week on the fastest hour in politics. And for everyone jumping in to the program this evening, Aggie Cantrill live uh, from Poland was really something, doing great reporting from Bloomberg and great analysis as well from Mark Niket. Thanks to the panel as well, Jeannie and John. I'll see you back here next week. Try to have a great weekend. We'll keep you posted here on Bloomberg Radio with everything you need to know. I'm Joe Matthew. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.